What's up guys, Dalton here. Before we hop into this episode of the PT Coffee Cast, I just wanted to touch base with you and say thank you. Thank you for tuning in. Whether this is your first time listening or you've been rocking with us since day one, we appreciate your support. Every like, comment, share, subscribe, whatever it is, truly does mean the world to us and it continues to push us to put out the best possible content for you guys. Before we hop in, I just want to talk to you about our partnership with Physio Network. Physio Network is on a mission to improve physiotherapy standards worldwide. They do this through their research reviews. If you sign up, you'll get 12 research reviews per month in both written and audio form. Articles are selected and appraised by industry experts such as Sandy Hilton, Mary O'Keefe, Tom Goom. Um, former PT Coffee Cast guests such as Teddy Wilsey, Sam Spinelli, Jared Hall, Tom Walters, and plenty more. They're clinically relevant and recently published, and they take less than five minutes to read one review, saving you hours of work. This also solves that problem that we all struggle with. How do we stay up to date with the research? Physio Network has you covered. They also give you access to a members-only Facebook group, and you can do quizzes that will get you CEU points. They got it all. If you guys are interested in trying out Physio Network, you can start your seven-day free trial now by using the link in the show notes or our bio on Instagram. This will give you the option to play around, see what you like. Do you like listening? Do you like reading? And just seeing the amazing content that they give you guys, and then you will join because Physio Network is amazing. We love to hear from you guys. If you have signed up for Physio Network, please let us know how your experience has gone. We'd love to hear, and we can pass on that information to them. Also, we are super pumped to finally announce the release of the Movement Coffee Club. What is this, you ask? This is a way that you guys can continue to connect and support the PT Coffee Cast community. So we have three clubs available for you guys. We have the Espresso Club, which each month you will get a personal message from Will and myself thanking you for the support the second club we have is the cafe club where you get everything in the espresso club as well as a shout out on an episode put on the list of the coffee club supporters and a bonus episode each month and then lastly we have our favorite club the mug club you get everything in the first two clubs as well as a pt coffee cast mug a monthly coffee subscription of our own coffee blend and a monthly mug club zoom call the reason why we put this club out is we want to continue to develop ways that we can connect with you guys the community as well as have an opportunity for you to support us um, show us some love and allow for us to continue to develop and put out the best possible content you guys can support us for as little as three dollars a month this money is going to go directly back into the podcast for new things like audio equipment video equipment for better video content merch coffee everything's going to go back into the pt coffee cast so we can continue to provide you guys with some pretty cool opportunities if you're interested in supporting us you can check the link in our bio on instagram at the pt coffee cast or at the movement pts and click the coffee club as well as in our show notes of each episode we'll have a link there for you to head over and join guys thank you so much for the continued support and we hope that you enjoy this episode of the pt coffee cast Welcome to the Movement PT Coffee Cast, where we sit down and talk about physical therapy, health, and whatever else comes to mind during our coffee-infused conversations. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the PT Coffee Cast brought to you by The Movement. My name is Dalton, and unfortunately, not alongside me today is my beautifully bearded friend, William. He is off doing what I like to call God's work, so he's not going to be able to join us on the episode today. So it'll just be me, but I'm super pumped about our guest today. So on today's episode, I have Katie Mitchell. She wears many hats. She's a physiotherapist, athletic therapist, PhD candidate, and the founder of Thrive Neurosport. Um, outside of the health space, she thrives with hiking with her dog, mountain biking, and supporting her local community. Katie, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Dalton. I really appreciate that introduction. Yeah. Um, it's great. I do wear a lot of hats. So that's, <laughs> that's a good definition of it. Definitely. I think, uh, I think we'll touch on all those hats, but um, I want to dive into maybe a little bit of the other things you thrive on. So you, the outdoors is something that you enjoy. And I know you just got back from a trip. So 
how was the trip and why the outdoors so uh so special to you uh yeah so we we just did some backcountry camping up in Killarney Provincial Park which is uh kind of on the northern side of Georgian Bay if no one's familiar with it in Ontario um and so we basically just camped on an island for a couple days um you know no water no reception no nothing so for me that's uh I think you can relate it's one of the ways that I can just kind of get lost and no one can find me (laughs) so um it's one of the only ways I can totally remove myself from work uh and actually really unplug so I I really enjoy getting out and uh you know having a paddle doing some hiking um you know, we even saw like a black bear on the weekends. So that was cool. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so it's, it starts uh, kind of with even my branding, like it's sort of authentic to me to sort of dive into nature as part of uh, my own wellness and health and what I promote for other people as well. Yeah, for sure. You can tell, you know, speaking to like your branding and just looking at your website, your Instagram page, like you can tell that Thrive, your your business is definitely intertwined with you as a person for sure. Like that comes across. Yeah. That's even like my, my tree brand is sort of, uh, you know, stolen from the North Northern Ontario as well. Um, and it's sort of just this concept of like that windswept pine that just like adapts to its environment and continues to grow and continues to thrive regardless of what it faces, you know, but they grow kind of crooked and they don't always look perfect, but they, they thrive on. So Um, the definition for me of like grow vigorously has always been something I wanted to kind of like promote within myself, but also, like I said, within others as well. Yeah. I love that. Like I saw, I saw you had a hashtag on one of your posts, like grow vigorously. And I wanted to kind of ask you about what that was and why that's important to you. And I'm assuming that ties into thrive and, and maybe the definition of what thrive is. Yeah, that's like, literally, if you just Google it, that's what comes up. So um, that for me was like a mantra for a lot of like the more, again, personal things I've gone through was like the word that just always kept coming back to me um, and kind of stuck out in my mind. Uh, And it always just, it it reminds me of even just like, like even just like development and growth and just even when I come to speak of the neural side of what I do. Um, I think of like thriving neural connections and all these things. So it builds into like kind of the other side of my practice as well, like the nerdier side of me. (laughs) So um, not just in nature and kind of getting outside and our brains just enjoy being outside. Um, There is science behind that, but it is sort of like the idea that we thrive on like, you know, adaptation and change and, you know, not necessarily resisting those things is what makes us kind of healthier and more, um, I guess, robust humans over the long run. Yeah. I love it. Like it's such a great creative way to tie in everything that, that you do. And, and obviously just listening to you share some of the things that you enjoy, like it's such a great way to tie it all together. Um, Before we dive into more of what Thrive is, I'm curious. So like you're an athletic therapist and a physiotherapist, when, what was first? And then also what, starting your PhD or have been doing your PhD for a period of time, like where did all that come into play? Yeah. So I was, uh, like many, many years ago, uh, as a kinesiology undergrad and I worked with sports teams on the sideline as one of like, you know, like a student trainer. Um, and so I was working like, I think I did three years with men's rugby and even concurrently worked with the women's hockey team at Wilfrid Laurier university. And so I was really busy in my undergrad. I honestly like didn't do what normal people do and have like a job. I I just like worked for free and for sports teams. Um, So I wanted to do everything. And so by fourth year, I was working with these two teams and on the road all the time. And I was really keen on being an athletic therapist. Um, You know, everybody always said like, you know, physiotherapy is also an option. So I applied to both and, and uh, for all the students out there, like I did get waitlisted the first time I applied to physical therapy school. So um, I ended up getting into athletic therapy at Mount Royal University in Calgary. And so it was a one-year program at the time, which worked really nicely for me. Um, it was an awesome experience to really dive in more into like sport and some different sports I hadn't worked like football and wrestling and um, even some like major games experience. So that was really neat. Um, and just to live in Calgary for a little while and move move away. Um, And then I ended up just reapplying to uh, physical therapy school because I was still really interested in like the neuro side of things. And the head of the program at the time was also, she was kind of a dual ATPT. And so she had said the main difference is going to be this like neurological aspect that we don't really cover as much. 
Um, I think that's kind of improved a little bit in the AT programs across Canada now. Um, but 10 years ago, it was sort of <laughs> um, not really as evident there. So I was really interested in that stuff. And so I ended up getting into Queens uh, and traveled back to Ontario, unfortunately, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and uh, went into my master's at, at Queens. And I absolutely loved that. And uh, so, yeah, I did do athletic therapy first and then um, physical therapy. And sort of at that point, it was like seven years of school. I just really needed to just take a break and work for a bit. I just felt like, you know, when I've done so much, I always felt like I was always on, under a lot of pressure with school. And there's so many exams that I kind of did all those exams in the same summer, which was just, I wouldn't recommend that to anybody. Chaos. <laughs> um, but all my certification and regulation exams were all done in the same year. And so I was just like exhausted. Um, and, uh, at that point, like a professor kind of suggested to me that doing a PhD was something that I should, should consider. And at that time I was like, no way, like never going to do that. Not interested in doing research. I wanted to be a clinician. Uh, and so I, I decided to work and I took a job and I ended up back kind of in the Waterloo region, um, working with a previous instructor of mine actually from my undergrad who owned a clinic and so I took kind of a job right away and just kind of dove into full-time practice. Awesome and then how long were you working like in practice before you ended up going back to do your PhD? It ended up being very long. <laughs> I think it was within a year I was already searching for opportunities and talk, <laughs> like talking to different professors and starting to reach out to potential advisors and I think it just ended up being that like full-time clinical practice which wasn't necessarily my favorite thing to do all the time um I really I'm a person who likes to have like three jobs like I was still doing field work with local uh local rugby club um so every Saturday I was on the pitch working like two three games still and then working full-time and I still had a lot of questions and I think that's what ended up really sort of being the catalyst for my PhD is like especially in the uh, at the time sort of like 2014, 2015 was uh, all this emergent literature in the concussion realm. And I started to just like see all these gaps. <laughs> it was gaps in clinic, it was gaps in the field. And I just didn't have any of my own, what I felt like ammunition to support, um, you know, my arguments against a player returning too soon potentially, or removing a player or like just ensuring the confidence, like my, my own confidence clinically, but also confidence in those athletes like I was returning to sport. Um, and so I ended up kind of, I was in an area where there's sort of a couple universities to choose from locally. And so I uh, reached out, ended up connecting with my advisor, I think in fall 2015, um, to start this, the following year. So I think I, I'd only worked about a year before I sort of solidified, like started applying actually and um, started the following year. So I, I worked another year before I started, but I started to kind of get involved with my lab uh, with uh, my advisor is Dr. Michael Chelly at Laurier and he's fantastic. He sort of convinced me it's one meeting together. And by the time I left, I was like, we're doing this PhD, like this is happening. Um, he's just a, an awesome guy to work with. And so I needed that kind of reassurance because I, I wasn't necessarily uh, very experienced in research. And I'd, I definitely had done some cold phone calls to some other uh, colleagues who were doing PhDs that I didn't even know. And I was just like, tell me about your life and just how you were managing all this. And honestly, I get a lot of that still from people. I got a message this morning about someone who was like, how do you juggle all of these things to be able to do a PhD? Because I'm kind of interested in research myself. Um, so definitely recommend kind of talking to some people who are already doing the thing that you might be interested in. Uh, cause that's like, I was really on the fence for a while. I really wanted to commit to it. And then uh, I'm really glad I did. Yeah. And, and, um, I want to hit on one thing that you, that you said, and I think it's important for, you know, like I was mentioning before the podcast, you know, we have a lot of new grad student, like younger clinicians, um, that tune in. And I think it's important to identify, that if you want to do multiple things at once, you know, if you want to have like part-time here, part-time there, I think that that's okay. Um, I think sometimes we can fall into this like specific route where it's like, oh, okay, you graduate, you start to work, you work for a bit, you just either continue working full-time, you know, however many hours in the clinic, and then maybe you start your own clinic or whatever, you know, but I feel yeah. like 
understanding that it is okay if you don't want to do that and you want to have like part-time here and part-time there, like that's totally fine. Um, and you should explore that. Cause I, I did a similar thing when I came out of school as I, I worked part-time as a physio part-time as a strength coach. Cause it was something that I always was interested in dabbling in and learning more about. And so I think it's important for people to, uh, if they feel like that's something they want to do to try to explore it a little bit. Yeah. And like, I certainly, like, I, I feel like I explored so many opportunities and I did so many courses kind of right out of the gate too, is the common story. I think on here as well. Um, you know, I did like manual levels and then I was doing like vestibular rehab and then I was doing, um, I don't know, like soft tissue release and all these things. And like, I did my dry needling and I did all that stuff, which some of that stuff I carry forward and I use all the time. Um, but some of the things also like I've just developed even through doing my own research and just learning and being like, just understanding the fundamental things that, um, helped me connect the dots for some of that stuff. And so I felt like I was just kind of like grabbing for things when I first graduated and hopefully trying to find the path that I ended up having to kind of carve it out myself. Um, but I'm always happy to like talk to new grads or students and I get a lot of messages um, about like how I kind of did what I did. And I was like, everything just kind of fell into place. Like I didn't, didn't really, I just kept kind of going on to the next thing until I landed on something that I liked. And so sometimes you do have to do some experimenting at the start. Um, and I still kind of have my hands sort of dipped in a bunch of different things right now, but I, I balance it out. I don't necessarily, I do now prioritize my own health, um, versus when I was younger and I would just work, work, work and kind of overdo things. But, um, I've understood that I, I only have so much of a capacity, uh, before I kind of burn myself out as well. And I, I felt like full-time practice for me was kind of burning me out, um, and having the diversity between like you know, doing a day of just like some data management, um, you know, quietly in an office and then going into clinic the next day, it really helps me kind of rejuvenate, even though I'm doing work the whole time. Um, so that sort of balances things out for me is I, I just feel like that person to person interaction drains me and um, I need to sort of prioritize that time to also be like the best for my patients as well. And so I show up with the, the energy that serves them the best. That's straight from like an Emma Jack quote, I think. Yeah, but. yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely. There's always, I always find a little Emma inside of me sometimes, you know, when I'm going, when I'm going off like that. Um, I think we all do, but um, yeah. So you got your hands in a couple of different areas, you know, you're still doing the on-field stuff. You're doing your PhD, you're working in clinic, what then led to the transition to starting Thrive in your own kind of space? Yeah, so um, I think I had about four different versions of what Thrive Neurosport was going to be um, involving multiple locations. And like, again, like things just sort of something happened where it just didn't work out or things, um, you know, didn't pull through. And so there was a couple of us call them like, like little failure learning experiences that I just, you know, it wasn't the right time and, and those things happened because it wasn't the right time. So I didn't necessarily give up on it. I sort of always had this like brand idea, um, probably held it for like four years before I actually started uh, officially. Um, I think I even had my Instagram account like a couple, like 2018, something like that. Um, and started just posting like really nerdy things that I liked. <laughs> um, and so I, I, you know, didn't have the hugest following through that time, but it grew and grew kind of over time. And um, so I always was kind of like, you know, in the back seat, like always having this plan that was generating and kind of regenerating. Um, and, and that's kind of even like personal barriers that sort of got in the way as well. And so even when I first had this idea and I got really pumped up about it, it was kind of the beginning of my PhD. I was like, I'm going to do what I like, I'm going to bring my, basically what I do in my PhD and bring it into the clinic and sort of start this whole new concept. And then like at the end of my first year of my PhD, my partner at the time, um, he passed away tragically in a car accident um, while he was up north, actually in Killarney. Um, and so that for me was like this huge, just like, like my world basically stopped very abruptly. And so I had been going and going and going and doing all these things, building myself up for this like thing, like, you know, thing to take off. And then just like literally had to function day to day. Um, and so that was a huge, obviously, obstacle and kind of just a, you know, a hit. And uh, I had to take step back. I, I ended up kind of burning myself out 
taking time off. And it was the first time in my life I'd actually taken time off of something for like, like more than a week. Like I took like four months off. I went off my PhD for a while and worked like one or two days a week. And I started doing some counseling and did some things, but I kind of learned that lesson after taking a few months and trying to just like push through because that's what I've always done. And then kind of the mentality, I think of the people I used to like be around and stuff. It was always like, you got to just keep pushing and get through it. Right. And so that was the first time in my life where I realized that pushing through things wasn't always the answer. Uh, And it actually helped shape, I think, who I am now as a clinician and uh, a teacher and educator and how I interact with my patients and how this brand has even evolved. Like a lot of the, the context behind it is actually inspired by what happened to me and thrive itself was sort of, again, that word that just always came up that kind of kept me motivated to get to back to where I was, um, which probably took over a year to really achieve again. And so for me, like there was, you know, they talk about adversity, but until you really have something like that happen, um, you know, all, whatever you were doing didn't really matter at that time. Um, You know, I realized that you know, I could build something up that's amazing, but it could all be gone and very quickly. Um, so I wanted to be really authentic to myself and keep my brand not like authentic, but also focus on the, my other value of health. And so not only like the health of others and kind of, you know, providing the best informed practices, but also the health of myself and sort of building something that would encourage that over time and not be something that I feel like I'm pressured to do and feel like I'm going to burn out doing it. Um, and so since then the brand has really evolved into sort of, again, like, like nourishing that idea, um, and sort of being, uh, like more on the side of like the human experience as well as like the science that I believe in as well. Yeah, no. And thanks for sharing that story. Cause I think it definitely helps people get a better understanding of like, the brand itself and why you're doing the things that you're doing and the messaging that you have. And, you know, I think tragic things like that give us perspective. You know, I think everyone in their life has, has gone through something that would be traumatic to them. And like, you know, I can relate to what it's like to lose someone that's close to you. And it, it, it definitely shapes your perspective and makes you think about the things that you're talking about. And, you know, I think it's a perfect example of what thriving is, you know, that whole scenario that you, you know, that you went through. Um, So to see you kind of come out on the other side of it and start to realize, you know, the important things like making sure you're valuing your health and making sure you're in a good place in order to serve others. Like all of those things are so important. And, you know, maybe it wouldn't have happened if you didn't go through the experience that you, you did, even though obviously you never want to go through something like that, but there's always ways that you can have perspective on those things. So I think it's, it's a awesome, you know, piece for you to share for people to understand that. Yeah. And I think too, like just from the experiences I had and the things I learned just about like going through different types of therapy and like having support systems and just even like kind of like the management strategies of like how I view exercise as like medicine, literally, um, and how I view nature as part of that. And sort of all those things of like having that support system is the other piece. And so when I'm dealing with some of the patients, uh, you know, managing what they're going through, I can kind of relate to the fact that like I've experienced something very similar where it was you know, it was a journey to go through. Um, and I know value in like those referrals or like those just like low hanging fruit strategies that can get you through a day um, versus like feeling like you have to do all these like super cool things all the time um, to get yourself better. That sometimes it comes down to, you know, what does your body need on that day? And like, what other things could we be looking into? And I sort of built a bench of like referral network um, practitioners that I value so much of like the things that I can't provide. Like I immediately try to get those things in um, and build them into the the management strategy. So that's really helped. I think uh, like just, again, that perspective you discussed with like understanding what's really going to be helpful. Um, and just, again, understanding and how to communicate with people better <laughs> has been huge. So, yeah, I want to dive into like thrive itself now. Cause you know, I don't know a whole lot about like your, your clinic specifically, obviously what I've seen through Instagram and stuff. Um, but 
I want to kind of hear how it's different. Like you can tell that it's different, you know, when, when you go on the Instagram page and you go on your website, um, you know, you can see that there's something else to it. So I'd be curious for you to, to kind of lay out and dive into um, what Thrive is. Yeah. So Thrive Neurosport um, for me, was always just like, it's one of those complex names that I came up with and I sort of created Neurosport as a definition of my practice and scope because I had this sort of like love and passion for neuro and uh, like the brain and how it interacts with the body, but then also like sports medicine is my roots and like where I came from, Um, literally started on the sidelines with everything. And so um, some people get deterred by seeing sport in a name. And so I was saying, I consider like the spectrum of athlete and what we consider to be an athlete um, in that can change through the life uh, lifespan as well as like just through development. So you can be, you know, you could have been an athlete when you were younger and now you're more on like what we call recreational is where I categorize myself Um, versus some people who were never really an athlete, but say they work out at the gym, they do some things, they hike, they bike, whatever. Those people are still athletes to me. And so I think there's a misconception about like what that term is defined by. I don't really discriminate between who's what level of athlete I see, you know, almost professional um, Olympic level athletes all the way to like a seven-year-old who just has active goals. Um, and so I primarily treat, uh, concussion and like neurological conditions or neuromuscular conditions, uh, as well as I do sort of specialize with athletes and helping them with sort of more complex orthopedic injuries, um, things that keep them out of sport for longer periods of time that influence sort of these neurological processes, um, such as like ACL recovery or hip, hip label repairs or, um, anything like surgical or something that's just like remove them for more than like a month, um, is something that I specialize in, especially with like lower extremity, um, since I'm kind of a biomechanics nerd, but, um, it's been primarily looking at like concussion and vestibular disorders as well as I have some patients who just have coordination disorders, but they all, the common theme is they all have active goals. And so I've kind of transformed what I used to do is like, I felt like it was a lot more passive, you know, as very traditional clinic style of having you're on the table for most of your appointment with modalities and different things to being a lot more interactive and, um, you know, engaging actively rather than being kind of, uh, you know, in a more passive care scenario. So a lot of the things that I've invested in and the technology that I use encourage sort of motor learning strategies. And so it applies to both like what I consider like a central uh, or concussion injury, which is like central to the brain versus like peripheral body. Um, which also influences the nervous system and how it actually provides feedback to communicate back to the brain, such as after like an ACL repair. Um, And a lot of the evidence now is emerging to show that like these strategies are more um, beneficial for uh, recovery and improving like, you know, mitigating injury risk and um, optimizing sort of like just daily function with some people with concussion, for example, um, and just encouraging kind of that circuitry to light up and reconnect and uh, establish like, again, those like motor learning um, strategies. So it's sort of things that have uh, evolved from my PhD and just transferred right into clinic. And I started doing it before I started my practice, but I was limited by my resources and it just wasn't as seamless as I wanted it to be. Uh, and I knew that I wanted certain elements in my practice to facilitate these things. Yeah. And the thing is, honestly, before I started to take like a deeper dive into kind of what you were doing for the podcast, like at first glance, I always thought that you were just working with like concussion, um, which I have come to realize that that's not the case, um, which is cool. And I guess my question would be then like, let's say I'm coming in to get like this neurosport performance kind of assessment and, and rehab plan, or maybe not necessarily rehab, but just a plan. Like, what does that look like? Like, how is that different maybe than what someone would expect going in for like an MSK assessment with their physio or, or does it differ? So yeah, the, uh, there's obviously some similarities between like what I do in an assessment um, versus like a typical MSK scenario. Say if an athlete came in, um, for example, like a hip labrum repair, uh, I would obviously check things like range of motion and some functional movements. 
Um, however, I'd also consider some of the more um, like sensory integration things. So like visual motor function or reactivity of that limb. Um, and also look at uh, like motor control and different like coordination type tasks um, in addition to like those kind of typical MSK things that we've learned traditionally. So like, for example, like um, instead of looking at just the stability of standing on that surgical limb, I would actually look at the reactivity of it, of like responding to stimuli. Um, you know, if it was like a goaltender, for example, like they need to have like really fast reaction time. So considering like that eye foot kind of reaction in addition to just, you know, the control of that limb and doing like really predictable exercises, it's like, how do we throw in some chaos <laughs> and see how they perform um, with some, you know, unpredictable type drills, or like I said, some external stimuli. Um, like I said, encouraging kind of the interaction with the environment. It sort of stems from my uh, lab's philosophy of sort of this ecological approach with um, perception to action. So like, how do we perceive our world around us? And then how do we produce actions? Um, and sometimes I add in some like dual tasking and some cognitive loading as well. Um, so instead of just doing your traditional like balance testing, for example, like I would get them to do some dual tasking or some like head on a swivel type movements um, and engaging some like vision vestibular and other sensory components to like challenge that limb. Um, so it's a little bit different than, uh, like I said, the traditional standpoint, but it's sort of that connection of bringing like the neuroscience into sports medicine. And how have you found like that being beneficial for like, let's say the example that you just used in comparison to maybe someone who doesn't explore that, approach as much yeah and so a lot of the people who come see me are actually sort of like further along in their rehab and they're like i've gotten this far but i still don't feel really confident can i get like that extra 20 percent or 30 percent better um and so you know they've done like kind of like the banded exercises and done the strengthening and they've done some single leg stuff um, but when it comes to like reactive, like plyometrics or just like open skill or sort of differential learning type tasks where it's like navigating an environment or bringing in some sports specific elements, um, they haven't done that yet where there's like speed and agility and like sort of getting the heart rate up at the same time. Um, and that's where I bring in elements like a fit leg trainer or apps like switched on training or other things that I use. Uh, to build those things in. And it, there is some similarities between what I do even with a concussion to what I do with an orthopedic injury. Again, I'm looking at different like, elements of those things and variables equation of it all, but it's uh, there's some things that overlap for sure. And sometimes there's like, they happen concurrently. So there could be an athlete who's had a recent ACL repair, and then they have a concussion or vice versa. And so you end up bringing in like kind of both sides um, of bringing in sort of like this concept of head on a swivel and bringing in like head turns, reactivity, like visual elements um, into rehab so that they can just like navigate their environment, interact with it naturally, similar to what you would in like a sport competition or like a busier environment. Yeah. And I think that's so key. I think that it, that ability to expose, whether it be an athlete or, or even a client to the environment in which they're going to see when they leave your space um, is so important to their rehab. And I think it can be sometimes a missing link um, just given the majority of cl clinics availability to equipment or to the environment to, to challenge them. Um, so it makes sense to, makes sense that you have access to be able to do that. And I can see why people would want to seek out you to be able to help fill that gap that they might be missing. Yeah, it's been, it's been really neat this year, actually, just with starting, I uh, only started like in the pandemic virtually. Uh, and so it grew from there where like some of the elements I brought in are meant to be like trainable remotely. So whether it's like an app or whether it's like a software program that they can train with, um, it, I've tried to bring in those things so that if I'm seeing someone in Toronto or someone in Thunder Bay, uh, I can, I can apply some of these things to their rehab just as I can in person. Obviously there's some limitations to things, but I try to do that as best as possible so that I can program remotely just as much as I can in person. And I think just emerging from the pandemic, that's been uh, an evolution, let's say, in clinical practice that's favored me pretty well. 
Um, particularly for people, again, who are like seeking out this sort of like additional thing that they can do where they've gotten so far either with traditional neuro rehab or traditional more orthopedic rehab is like the blurred lines between them to bring in like these functional elements. Um, that doesn't really exist a lot in our space right now. Definitely. And I, and I feel like you're someone at least here in Ontario that's pioneering that. Would, would that be like fair to say? Uh, I'm not sure if I'm totally pioneering it, but I, I think that I'm kind of a, a unicorn just in some of the different things that I do, but, um, there's certainly people who have a similar perspective to me that I, I, you know, mentors of mine or whoever, but, uh, you know, we've all taken different paths with things. So, um, I certainly think that there are other people out there who, uh, also do these things, but from where it's like a rehab and performance standpoint, I think either people are on the rehab camp um, or they're in the performance camp and they don't necessarily like mesh those two together, um, which I hope to do anyways. But there's certainly some people across Canada that, uh, I, again, I, I consult with myself and sort of our friends with uh, just even through, you know, commonalities that we've uh, realized through the past year as well, that uh, there's a few of us that are working towards these things together. Yeah, for sure. And I guess that makes sense. Like, <clears throat> I think one thing that we try to do, you know, at, at our space um, with the movement is we try to bridge that rehab to performance gap as well. Now, not as focused on like bringing the the neural aspects of thing, things into it, like that you're very focused on. However, like just even having this converse, conversation, I'm intrigued and in learning more and, and, you know, picking your brain. And I know you have, you know, courses for clinicians to take to learn more of this stuff, but I think it's a, a very unique spot that you sit in from both like the approach that you're taking as well as researching this clinically with your PhD and then being able to bring it right into your practice and explore it. I think that's a unique situation. We usually see a bit of a divide from the research and clinical practice, right? From your standpoint with like strength and conditioning, like I bring that stuff in of elements that I've learned just through like athletic therapy and that kind of programming um, that like I bring that into like my concussion rehab. So like I bridge, like we'll work on back squats or deadlifts um, and figure out ways to like program pace and progress it to get an athlete back to training. So like, you know, you usually do like your uh, typical concussion rehab may include some sensory components and some coordination and some balance control. But like, how often do you get under a squat rack when you're doing your concussion rehab or, um, you know, work on um, sport specific elements that are part of your strength conditioning or your um, training. And so I, I actually get to a point where then I contact like the strength coach that they used to work with. Like, okay, I think we're prepared to actually get back in the gym. Um, but we at least explore those things first because there's things like autos, like dysautonomia that can affect like heart rate regulation and that can be significantly affected with lifting. And it just usually gets kind of tossed under the rug as exercise intolerance. Whereas there's like a lot of things that just need to be sort of recalibrated before you can get them back to their training level as they were. So I'm kind of that person that like fits in the between <laughs> um, to get them there. Cause sometimes like, you know, I'll see some, some pretty high level athletes and they kind of get into this rut of like, you know what, I can't like get past this, this part of my recovery. I'm sort of stuck at this like 60% um, and I haven't been able to move past it, but it's because they haven't really been progressing into those realms yet. Yeah. And I think it's a, there's something to be said for being able to at least have that athlete or that person be exposed to that in the rehab setting, you know, with you, I feel like it can be a bit of a safer environment sometimes for the client as opposed to them going, let's say back to their strength conditioning coach or back to lifting with the team where it's a little bit less of a controlled environment. And then they're having some of these responses. And, you know, I think being able to have your guidance or feedback as to whether or not it's okay for them to experience this or whether or not, Hey, this is something we need to address. I think having them exposed to that just gives them more confidence when they do go out on their own to the teams to, being empowered to make those decisions. Like, I think there's a lot to that in the, in the rehab process and overcoming maybe that 60% and moving forward. Right. Yeah. And that's where like a lot of things, like I said, I've just, you know, invested and sort of gathered some monitoring tools as well as assessment tools that can really help me capture some of those, um, 
things that necessarily aren't always assessed, right? So I can pick up on things that are like, okay, this is where we either need to refer onwards, or this is kind of interventions, the sort of types of progressions we need to work on. Um, and you'll appreciate like, sometimes I just program like EMOMs and stuff <laughs> um, with patients to, to regulate those responses, whether it's a vestibular response, whether it's an autonomic response, or visual or combination of those things uh, to sort of desensitize the nervous system. And so I take a lot from strength and conditioning and performance and get, but again, bring in like that neuroscience aspect. Um, Cause even now, like we're basically looking at those kind of more robust progressions of assessment to ensure that confidence and that empowerment for an athlete to feel really good about going back to their sport that they kind of push to a relevant sort of uh, capacity that they need to perform at uh, before going back, like when they're cleared for their sport. Um, so we kind of just throw everything in and like, for an example, like right now, my studies kind of look like a, a video game eye exam on a treadmill. So it's like, <laughs> um, we're kind of mashing up all the clinical domains but that's kind of what we need to do in those later phases. Instead of isolating them all in these kind of silos, we break them down uh, and bring them together for these more like realistic scenarios. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Is there anything that you're super excited about that you're seeing um, in the research or new and kind of novel things that are coming up where you're you're starting to implement it maybe a little bit in your practice and getting excited about it or? Yeah, and I, I think uh, there's so many cool things, but a lot of it actually is the stuff that's bridging in the world that was things I considered was like exclusively concussions. Like now these concepts are being uh, implemented there. Like this um, idea of perception to action as ecological approach is sort of kind of becoming a blanket across everything. And so now like these ideas of external cueing and letting movement just emerge from sort of like naturally evoked cues of like whether visual cues or auditory cues. Um, for example, that's kind of where like the fit lights uh, come in is like, we can just have like, you know, external visual cues and people can just move. And then you kind of remove that attention, like sort of like psychosocial barrier of like them being like, oh, I can't squat that low or, oh, I can't move that quickly. And then they kind of get engulfed in a little bit of a gamified scenario. And, you know, like I can have like a 65 year old woman doing like a deadlift and she's like, oh, I didn't realize I could reach down to the floor that confidently uh, or like an athlete doing like, you know, rotational agility moves and stuff where like before they had dizziness with that. Um, and we can play with the tempo and the speed of those things uh, to progress them. And so that kind of stuff's coming out of this like perception action approach is actually kind of valid in rehab um, to prevent like re-injury risks, like upon return to sport and mitigate those like potential risks anyways, um, of just getting that more sort of like functional sort of interventions that allow people just to kind of interact, right? So it's like, instead of giving them a really discreet task of like, okay, do like these squats right here. It's like, how about we put like, you know, different levels and they have to like squat down to the floor, do things. You're still squatting, but you're creating it in a different way and kind of having them evolve the movement in a different way. Um, so I found that I'm implementing that a lot more uh, in my practice and teaching clinicians about it as well. Yeah. I think that's awesome. And it makes, it makes sense to me. Just like, obviously I don't know the details around it that you would be able to educate me on, but just as a general overview, that makes a lot of sense. And I could see how that also was probably helpful to someone who's been in chronic pain as well. Um, just knowing some of the things we know about pain and its process, having them experience some of those things that you just explained, I'm sure there's some, um, impact that that would have on, on someone's chronic pain. Yeah, for sure. I've, I've definitely had some more advanced cases where, um, you know, it was like a more uh, progressive disorder, let's say that affected coordination, but then they, someone like that has been experiencing that for a long time. And they're so worried about what people perceive them looking like um, that when I get them like dual tasking and walking at the same time, and they actually move better because they're just getting out of their own head and they're being distracted by something else. And so kind of instead of this analysis paralysis in their own mind, they sort of get like, you know, we take their attention somewhere else. Um, and that's sort of like, again, how it naturally evolves. Obviously, there's going to be some movements that are discrete, right? You're like back squat, certain things like right. that's going to all like be still the same. But when you're 
class of what a sport competition is, for example, or even just like playing with kids or doing something in your backyard. Like there's decelerations, there's change in direction, there's different levels. Um, and those things are sometimes underrated, I think, when we do a lot of like stationary movements or less like more predictable movements. Whereas like if someone just wants to play with their grandkids, it's like, well, you got to make them a little more unpredictable and get them moving in ways that they feel comfortable. Um, so I kind of blend those two things together. I don't just do all of that. I, I do some of the more like typical things as well. But I, I find the blend works really well. We work on like strategic strengthening with specific exercises, but then we have some open skill exercises that also like just encourage that confidence to be like, oh, I've never really felt good about moving in this direction, but like, here we go. <laughs> so, uh, but then if it's like a higher level athlete, I just have those higher expectations. Um, say for like a varsity football player, you know, they need to be moving in a, a lot more faster, more agile, um, stronger. And so I do consider, I do sort of evaluate people on like, again, a, that spectrum of like where they actually are with their abilities and what their expectations are. So I don't expect everybody to be kind of this like superior athlete. Um, but there is evidence to say that athletes do have those superior trained kind of perceptual skills. So they should be better. So I do hold them at a higher bar um, and have those expectations uh, set for them. Right. It's all scalable, right? So that makes exactly. sense. That makes sense <laughs> to me. Um, the last thing I want to talk about quickly as we, as we kind of wrap up here is just to note like the online education that you are doing for clinicians around this. Um, what does that look like? And, and how can people, you know, seek you out if they're interested in learning more about that? Yeah, and this was something that emerged in the pandemic because uh, I had done some conferences and workshops and things before, and people started just to ask me, they're like, we have nothing to do. Can you teach us a course <laughs> or something? And I was like, sure. Like, I never really considered doing it as quickly as I did. Um, I sort of threw it together last year, and then it was so well received that I, I kind of just carried it forward. And and now I'm back kind of in in-person research again, doing all this stuff. But um, yeah, the athlete brain, uh, RX or rehab course, uh, sort of evolved out of, like I said, like athletic therapists and physiotherapists just being like, we would love to learn like what you're doing. Um, and so I formulated like this originally it was like two courses and I just sort of put it all in one and now it's online, like a, a platform and sort of more legitimate, <laughs> but there's been, uh, there's been over a hundred people have done it so far. Awesome. Uh, and so it's, it's been really awesome just to network with all these people across Canada and the U S uh, and it's all just really been through word of mouth um, and through like social media and things like that. So I purposely didn't call it a certification because I find that certifications sort of give you this like almost like, you know, you can stick it on your clinic door and say, I'm certified in this, come see me. And I feel like it's, it's such an evolving process to continue learning that by just doing one course and saying you're certified in something like, sure, you, you can do that. And some courses do, and that's fine. But I think it's like, people keep telling me like, oh, I'm like going back to the course content from a year ago and like re-looking at it and like learning more stuff from it, just from like a new patient that I saw today. Um, and so that part's really cool for me when I see this seriously, like continue learning and continue evolving. So it's not like, okay, I did this course. Now I'm going to like stop there and that's it. Like, I want it to be something that is like clinicians feel like they can take and apply to what they're already doing. And it's just like understanding these fundamental concepts, taking some ideas that I have, and then they take it and like metamorph it into whatever they want to do with whoever they're working with, whether it's like ski cross or like swimming, or um, maybe it's just like average population people are chronic pain. Um, they take these concepts and they can just apply it as a framework rather than being like, here's what I do. I'm going to teach you this. <laughs> um, I try to encourage as much of that, like critical thinking and problem solving on, on their own. So um, I've left it sort of as this like open and it's not like a, I don't dub it a concussion person, but it is sort of based on concussion rehab, but it does bridge into, like I said, those orthopedic scenarios as well that it applies to. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And it's totally, totally online. Like, do you run it every so often? Or is it just like people access the online platform and they and then they work through it? Is Yeah, so I was, uh, I've been running it in cohorts, uh, like in groups, because I do live sessions as well. Uh, there's four modules in it. 
covering everything from just like sort of that ecological approach theory and sort of all that framework talking about how the athlete brain actually operates. And then we talk about like vestibular ocular motor and cervical spine integration and then the autonomic system. And then we go into movement coordination and kind of, again, like mashing all that stuff together and how do you take it and progress it um, with it. So it's very easy to bridge into that. Um, and we see that a lot on social media. So um, I try to at least keep it within like, what is attentional capacity and how can you like build all this stuff in? Uh, and so right now it is like, it's online, it's all recorded and people have been going through like kind of on a start date and we do it as a cohort. Um, but I have been toying with the idea of making it sort of a like, you know, go on your own pace kind of thing as well um, and figuring that out and sort of, like I said, it's a newer platform. So I'm, I'm constantly evolving it myself and making it better and taking feedback. And I really want it to be like a, a clinician's course. Like I don't want it to be a course that, um, you know, I just set and that's, that's it. I want it to, to always sort of cater to the people who are taking it and for them to work for their learning experience. Um, cause I find a lot of courses aren't necessarily, developed by people who have a lot of education training necessarily, where it's like to actually use strategies and layout and tools and resources that encourage learning um, instead of just like kind of doing a, a sort of a regurgitation sort of didactic course. Um, so as much as the encourage, like engagement and things I can get with clinicians, uh, that's my favorite part of teaching. For sure, and I'm sure you learn a lot from that as well. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, it's been really awesome. Like I said, just growing this network and, and meeting people and like then seeing some people at like the Olympics and just like awesome things like that and seeing all these cool people that I get to meet, uh, even if it is virtually. <laughs> it's kind of yeah. been limited by this year, but um, no, I'm really excited for the future directions of it. Cool. Awesome. Well, why don't you leave where people can find you on Instagram and your website um, so that they can get all that good stuff? Yeah, for sure. Um, on Instagram, you can find me at Thrive Neurosport. Uh, and my website is just thriveneurosport.ca. Um, got a lot of resources on there. And the education is hosted on clinical neurosport education, uh, is CNS ed. I like a good acronym. Uh, so you can find that through my website as well, I'll take you to the learning platform. Uh, and you can kind of get a sort of idea of what courses look like. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess that's the best way to find me. Cool. Well, Katie, thanks so much for coming on and taking the time. This was awesome. I love the story. I love the brand. I love your messaging. It's so great. Um, and, and you know, the, I know you're not going to say that you're a pioneer, but I'll, I'm going to say that maybe you're one of the pioneers that are bringing this, this stuff to at least the Ontario area, which makes me very excited. Um, and I'm definitely going to be looking more into some of the things that you talk about, because I can see how that would very much translate over to the population um, that we see here. So thank you so much for awesome. taking the time. Thank you so much. I really appreciate being on here. And said, I've listened to this podcast for a while, so it's very cool to be a guest on it, I have to say. Awesome. Very awesome. Thank you.